0: that we can continue to grow together. Can you uh, look at a few people around you and just say thank you for being here? Uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's encourage one another, hey, it's good to be here, uh, it is right to be here, it is fitting to be here, yeah. Uh, this uh, this morning we had our, our first service in here and our second service, I think that um, you know, it, it's hard for me to get... Uh, the. Uh, the people of Ukraine off of my heart. I don't know if that's been the case for you as well, but um, every song that we've sung, I've I've just kind of been trying to put myself into the the, the mind space and, and the mind frame of uh, of the church in in Ukraine and what they might be singing now. Um, you know, you hear you hear testimonies of of the churches that um, when countless others have have fled uh, Ukraine and, and rightly so and justifiably so. Um, the churches that have chosen to stay there because um, they want to be a refuge. They want to be a place for uh, war-torn people to come in, people whose homes have been destroyed. um, They can come into the church, and and their their belief is that this war will soon be over. This war will soon be over, and what will shine in the minds of our country, uh, we want it to be the witness of the church during a time like this, and that's been humbling, and it's been challenging, and and I, I can imagine as they're holed up in their churches and in their places, they're singing, Lord, would you, would you uh, not, not for a moment was I forsaken. Uh, surely God is in this place, even in this place as, as missiles are going off and bombs are flying and smoke is in the air. God, surely you're in this place. And for it's here that my heart has found its deepest treasure, not in the things that I've lost, not in the things that war can take, but in the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ. And and we see that. We see that in, in hardship. We see that in, in difficulty. We see that in times of testing. And I pray that as we um, unify our hearts with the church in Ukraine and as we pray even uh, at a bigger level for um, the situation in that country and in the situation in that area, that we, would, uh, yeah, that we would find solidarity and that we would join in the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings with them so that we might know their needs better and that we might identify with and understand the suffering of Christ a little bit deeper as well. But I... I I I woke up to the news on on Thursday, Friday just um, heartbroken, hearing that this was imminent, uh, hearing that it happened, hearing that troops had gone in. um, Most people are saying nothing like this where where a dominant nation has invaded unprovoked into another nation simply for a power grab and to grab more territory is something unprecedented since World War II. Um, Perhaps when when Russia did the same to Crimea a few years back or when the Soviets in Afghanistan uh, perhaps a similar thing was happening. I don't know. I don't, I'm don't. i not an expert in government, foreign relations, or international affairs, but as the rest of the world and as the people of Ukraine um, sit and watch in fear and anger and sadness and, and terror and all the things that they're feeling, uh, sometimes you might wonder, what is God in heaven doing in a time like this? And uh, where is God and what does God feel? Like, what does God feel during a time like this when nations rage against nations, ra- nations rage against Uh, Nations that didn't do anything in order to to provoke them, but simply in order, like a hungry, hungry hippo, to gain more land and gain more territory uh, to attack. Uh, Where is God? What does God feel about that? Uh, Last week, we began a series looking at the minor prophets, um, the most overlooked books, what I think, in the Bible. And what I want to do today is I want to look at Nahum, which is the next in line chronologically after Micah, which we read last week. And I believe that Nahum has a word for the situations that we see going on in Russia, Ukraine. Uh, A word for our lives as well. Um, Amongst that book of 12 overlooked books of the Bible, I would say that Nahum is the most overlooked of the most overlooked. (laughs) In fact, there are a lot of people who feel like Nahum should not be in the Bible because it presents God as a very angry kind of God. There are people who believe that uh, when they plan preaching calendars and they go through every book of the Bible, they believe that Nahum is one that should be omitted and in many lectionaries... If you don't know what that is, you look it up later. But in many lectionaries, Nahum is one of uh, the few books that are omitted in the annual preaching calendar of the lectionary that publishes preaching material for some churches that choose to use such a thing. Nahum, I think, is important. It's important for the message that it brings. It's important for what we are talking about today. It's important for our current events. It's important because though it was a message that was timely and specific for a people 2700 years ago, it's extremely timely for us here today as well. And I think what you would find interesting is the most non-overlooked of the minor prophets is the book of Jonah. You probably know the true story of Jonah. But what I want to present to you is that Nahum is the sequel, the next chapter, chapter five of the book of Jonah. What happened After Jonah preached to Nineveh, what happened after that to that city and to the nation, the empire in which they lived? That's what the book of Nahum deals with here today. We're going to look at a few verses from this chapter, but I want to set it up. You know maybe the the true story of Jonah. He was a prophet and God said, go to Nineveh, which was a capital city of Assyria, the most wicked empire, the most powerful dominant empire that they'd ever known in their day. And The capital city Nineveh was a ruthless people. They were known for capturing people, decapitating them. They were known for capturing people, putting them in kennels and treating them like wild animals, subjugating people. They were known for taking lands and infiltrating people's lands and doing awful and inhumane things to the people who were displaced as they took them into exile. These were the Assyrian people and there's no doubt that Part of fear of Jonah going to Nineveh was because of the kind of people, the ruthless nature of the people to whom he would, f- to whom he would have to preach this message. And so he said, I'm not going to go, God. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. Finally, God says, you're going to go. And so, says, and so Jonah says, fine, I'm going to go. And he goes to Nineveh, and the message that God gives him to preach is a message of God's love and, re- and, and repentance. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. But all Jonah says is, 40 days and Nineveh is going to burn. That's all he says. He says, I did my job, I did my job, and he gets ready to leave, and he sits on a, on, a, on a hill, and he grovels and complains because the work of God in the hearts of the Ninevites was so real that the moment they hear, they proclaim a 40-day fast, and they fall in the ground, and they say, the God that Jonah's preaching about is a God we need to give our lives to. And so they surrender to the Lord God, and from the youngest to the oldest, from the most powerful to the most common of people, there is a complete revival In the city of Nineveh. That was in about the year 790 BC. In human history, 790 BC, the city of Nineveh gets turned around right side up by the preaching of the gospel and hope comes to the people of Nineveh. Well then, The problem with Nineveh was the same problem that you and I have. We go to retreats and we repent. We go to praise and prayer night, we repent. We go to SNF, we repent. We come on Sunday, we repent. We go to house church, we repent. Whatever happens, we repent at these retreats, revivals. We give ourselves to Christ, but then we quickly turn away from God and go back to our sin. That's what happened with the Assyrians also. And so, you may remember that in the year 722, the evil Assyrians, again, just 70 years after they experienced this revival, 70 years later, two generations later, they would go to the northern kingdom of Israel. And they would attack it, and they would destroy it, and they would take the inhabitants of Israel into exile into Assyria. They would displace the people with their own people, intermingling with them, creating a group of hated people called the Samaritans. I know this is all stuff that you may or may not know. But the point being that Israel was invaded by the very people that Jonah went to preach to just 68 years after they'd experienced revival. And so the prophet Nahum was sent to preach to the city of Nineveh. One of the few prophets who are not speaking directly to Israel or Judah, but he's speaking to Nineveh and allowing us as the people of God, allowing Israel and Judah to overhear the message in order that they might hear what God is saying to them. The name Nahum means comfort. And as Nahum preaches a message of wrath and vengeance and destruction against Nineveh, As we overhear it, it's supposed to be a message of comfort to the people of God then and to the people of God now. This is a very difficult book of the Bible to preach from, and yet this is a message for us today. I want to bring out just two thoughts, okay? The first one is this, that God can handle your problems no no matter how big they are. Okay, God can handle your problems. What are the problems that you're facing in life today, the message of Nahum, one of them, is that God can handle them no matter how big they are, okay? Israel's biggest problem was very clear. It was the evil Assyrian empire. That was the problem, and to that context, God speaks these words through Nahum to the evil empire that is Assyria. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book, literally the burden of Nahum... The book of the vision, the book of the burden that God placed in Nahum's heart of Nahum, whose name means comfort, the Elkishite. And then the poem begins in verse 2. It says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes and maintains His wrath against His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. Um, this is God's pause here, and then we're going to continue looking at a few other passages in the book of Nahum. And I want to encourage you, um, they're not all, I don't believe they're all going to be up here on the screen. So if you have your Bible, Nahum is a very difficult place to find, but we're going to be looking through, flipping through here. So if you can find it after Micah, uh, before Habakkuk, if you can find it, it will be really helpful. Again, if you, uh, as we go through this series, if you take a look at the Bible Project videos that you can find on Bible Project or on YouTube, it'll be really helpful to understand context because we're not going to dive deeply into each of, these, each of these books. But Assyria is the great problem of the people of God. Remember, again, 722, they destroy Assyria. The, southern, the northern kingdom is gone. Judah, the two tribes, the little tribes in the south are all that's left the people of God, and then a few people who are the remnants of the northern kingdom, okay? So the big problem for the people of God is this evil empire, Assyria. And so when God comes and He speaks to them, it says something that is very foreign, perhaps, to modern ears and our modern conception or perception of who God is. Five times in the first two verses, it says, listen to this language. The Lord is jealous, okay? And then it goes, He's avenging. The Lord takes vengeance, is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The lowest is slow to anger. So six times in the first one and a half verses, it says that God is angry. He is revenge, uh, vengeful. He is an avenger. All these things it says about who God is. And for a lot of us, we would think, and this is why many people don't believe Nahum should be in the Bible. Because they say, well, God is a God of love. Love should not be this angry. This should not be this vengeful. In fact, Jesus Himself, who is the Son of God, said, "Don't take revenge. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them. If someone is your enemy. Don't hurt them, but pray for them. Love your enemies." So it must be a typo that it says that God is a god of vengeance. He's jealous, he's filled with wrath, he's angry, maintains his wrath. Should be a typo, this is a mistake. It must, at the very least, be a mistranslation of the Hebrew text. God can't, surely can't be a God of vengeance and wrath. That's what we think because in our minds, we have our own idea of who God is. It's kind of like we have our idea and our expectations of people too, don't we? We have our idea, I know that um, we have our ideas of what pastors ought to be like. I have a friend who, um, back many, many years ago when we were living in Virginia, he was a pastor, and he was probably the kindest and gentlest pastor that I know. If you know him, you would probably say the same thing. I know that you may think that Pastor Josiah is the kindest, gentlest pastor, and I would give you that, so maybe my would come in second place. So here, the second kindest pastor that I know in the entire world, okay, he was a, a great pastor. He is a great pastor. He was back in the day as a very good basketball player too. And so he played point guard, right? So one day in his 20s, he's playing basketball at a gym called Lifetime Fitness or Lifestyle or a- a- Lifetime Fitness in, in Virginia. So he's playing basketball, and he's mid-20s, so still so good, but ooh, getting a little bit at that age, okay? He was being covered by this younger dude It was a college student who was pretty good and very quick. And so this guy was being very aggressive with my friend who was dribbling. And every time he would be really aggressive, try to reach in and steal the ball from my buddy. And so my friend would call foul. And he'd be like, oh, that's not a foul. The guy would be like, oh, that's not a foul. And check the ball up and get all angry at him. Playing again and he's dribbling. The guy fouls my friend again. He calls foul. And he's like, stop calling these ticky-tack fouls. Okay, no blood, no foul. That's what we sometimes say on the basketball court. No blood, no foul. And my friend's like, okay, and he checks the ball and gets the ball back, and he's And throughout the game, up and down the court, this guy, this young guy is trying to be physical with my buddy. At one point, my guy is dribbling, and the guy tries to steal the ball, and he tackles him. Tackles him, and then my, my guy's like, dude, what's up with that? And the guy gets all aggressive with him, and he, he starts wrestling with him. He didn't know that my pastor friend not only played basketball back in the day, but he was also a wrestler. <laughs> so he grappled him down to the ground and got him down, and the, other, the kids start swinging at him. And so what is he going to do? I don't know if Pastor Josiah would do that. Maybe he would just take a hit, and then he would laugh at him, and then he would push him off and get But my friend starts swinging back at him. Just self-defense. I, knowing him, it had to have been self-defense. He are swinging back at him. Then another guy comes in. Okay, this is one of our other friends who was playing basketball that day. So this friend came to America when he was young from Korea. He okay, came to America when he was young from Korea. But the problem is, some people, this just happens. It's unfortunate. Even though he came when he was young from Korea, he didn't become good at English. So here's his, his challenge when he's not, good at, he's not good at Korean, but he's not good at English either. And so he's trying to break up this fight. So he starts yelling at my friend, and he starts screaming at him. He's also got a very high-pitched voice. It was almost comical, but he said, "Stop it!" He called his name, say his name is sung. He said, "Sung! Stop it! Stop it! Stop fighting him." And then he said, "You a pastor! <laughs> you a pastor! Get off him! You a pastor!" And he pulls him off of him, because in his mind, he's like, "Dude, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to be fighting in his mind." His perception, his idea of a pastor is that a pastor should not be fighting. A fighting pastor is an oxymoron. You know an oxymoron, right? Two words that should not go together. You are pretty ugly. That's an oxymoron. That was seriously funny. That's an oxymoron. Okay, this is what an oxymoron is. Two words that we think ought not go together. And so when we come to the opening verses of the poem of Nahum, the prophecy of Nahum to the people of Nineveh, in our mind, we're like, dude, this, shouldn't, this doesn't make any sense. An angry God, a vengeful God. What does that even mean? The other day, our, our, our little guy, Elijah, he was uh, looking over my shoulder and he was reading my sermon. He said, God is jealous and avenging? What? What does that mean? And he thought it was the funniest thing. He's like, there's no way. And then one of the people in our family who was listening to him say that said, it means that he's an avenger. <laughs> that's what it means. Well, doesn't necessarily mean that, but in our minds we think that can't be. And that's where we run into problems. Because when we think, well, the Bible can't surely be serious when it talks about God in this way, God can't be an angry God. He can't be a vengeful God. He can't be an avenging God. He can't be a wrathful God. Let's just delete Let's not preach on the book of Nahum. Let's not read the book of Nahum. Let's pretend that it wasn't there. Then we have a truncated view of God, which leads to a truncated view of the gospel, which almost always leads to an anemic life that is devoid of holiness in our lifestyle. What if God really is a God of vengeance? And he really is a God of anger. What if we have to deal with that? We have to wrestle with that. That's what Nahum forces us to do. Because not only Nahum, but throughout the Bible, we see that God gets angry. And that God is jealous. And God gets vengeance. And he's filled with wrath. What does that mean? The reason we have a difficult time with this is because we think of anger in a certain way. We think of anger the way that you and I think of anger. I got angry this week. I got angry this week a lot. I got angry when I went to uh, one of our our, our couple's homes, and we ate together. Beautiful, wonderful, Daniel Fast-friendly meal. It was a great meal, shabu-shabu. And at the end of that meal, they said, well, we're not done yet. And they made this Daniel Fast-friendly popcorn. I was like, what in the world is that? It was not microwave. It came out of this thing called a popcorn popper. And popcorn started coming out of it, and they're like, this is healthy. It's completely, you know, it's just kernels of corn popped. And so I was like, man, this is amazing. Olivia, Manny, love popcorn. So first thing I did, I went home and I bought myself or I bought them a popcorn popper from overstock.com. I was really excited. I couldn't wait for them to come home. And, And when they came home, I said, guys, guys, I bought you something so amazing, so amazing. What is it? I said, I got you a popcorn popper. Why is this so funny? So I bought them popcorn, and then uh, and then Olivia's like, oh, I bought one of those a few weeks ago. I was like, what? You bought one of these amazing popcorn poppers, but we haven't used it for the Daniel Fast. This is crazy. And so here's where I get it. I wasn't angry at that. So I went to my email. I clicked on uh, your orders for overstock.com, and I said, cancel order. I got an email back. Thank you for trying to cancel your order. We'll get back to you. And then a little while later, I got an email back saying, sorry, your order cannot be canceled. I was like, what? What are you talking about? I got angry that now we've got two popcorn poppers and they wouldn't take my order back. I was upset at that. Like I really was. I was like, are you kidding me? What is it? Like Amazon would have taken it back. This is ridiculous. I got angry yesterday too. I got really angry because against all odds, my son Elijah's basketball team made it to the championship game of the 9 and 10-year-old I-9 league. There's only four teams. Don't worry about that. They made it to the championship game. (laughs) All right, they made it, okay? Just delete that from your memory. They made it, and I got really angry because at the end of that game, Elijah's team was on the short end of the score by a large margin. They got slaughtered. It was like, yeah, it was bad. And I was very angry, very angry at that. I got angry about a lot of things. I got angry because I was supposed to have a meeting this week, and somebody came like eight minutes late. I was really angry about that. I I got angry about a lot of stuff. I got issues. You know why I get so angry? I get so angry because I got problems. I got problems. That's why I get angry. Do you get angry ever like that? You see, the difficult thing for us to understand is that God also gets angry. But it's not because God's got problems. See, God's anger is a lot different than ours. Because running alongside of the anger of God in verses one and two is something else that we see. And you'll see this if you look at your Bible. In verses two and three, look at what it says. The second word, it says, the Lord, with the Lord in all capital letters, okay, it says that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Number two, the Lord takes vengeance. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Five times from from the jump, it introduces God as the sovereign Lord, the covenant Lord. And this is a name that God gave to His people, the name that He revealed to them by which to say, I am your covenant God. Okay, this name is only to be used by the people who are in covenant relationship with me, the people of whom I said the the ones who bless you I will bless and the ones who curse you I will curse. In other words, the reason God got angry, the reason God gets angry is deeply connected to his covenant love for his people. Because you understand this too, don't you? If you love anything, then you will get angry when the thing that you love gets threatened. Let me say that again. You think about any time you get angry at something, the reason you get angry is because something that you love got threatened, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Someone takes your car, you get angry. Obviously, you should do that. Someone takes your spot in line, you you get angry because your pride was taken away from you. The reason I got angry because our basketball team lost is, well, because it probably looks bad on me. It makes me feel less of uh, of a good coach. or makes me feel a certain way. I feel bad for Elijah's ego and our team's ego. I don't know what, for whatever it was, I get angry, and anger is always an indication that something that you love is being threatened. The thing is, when it comes to God, the anger of God is never unjust. It's never impulsive. It's never just like, Hawk and I'm angry. I'm going to destroy these things. It says here in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. And as God speaks to what could be called the Russia of the day, probably the people of God were saying, God, why are you taking so long to destroy them? They're so wicked. They're so awful. Look at all of the things that they're doing. God's slowness to anger is not a result of His impotence, but it's a result of His patience. That God is wanting none to perish, but even Nineveh to come back to repentance. Again, God is slow to anger. And so here's Israel, the people of God, the remnant of Israel, the people of God, and they've got a problem. And they know that they can do nothing about it. And so God says, because of my covenant with you, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And because Assyria has become such a curse to you, The time has come for me to bring judgment on them. God is avenging the sins of the Ninevites out of His love for His glory and out of His love for His people. So what does that mean? It means that if there's something in your life that is a problem, then God in His covenant love for you says, I can handle your problems no matter how big they are. Israel's people... The people of God thought, there's no way, there's no way we're going to overcome Assyria. There's no way. We can't do it. God, we need you to do this. And so 722, okay, 722, Israel gets sacked and destroyed and the, and the exiles go out. In 701 BC, the Assyrians attack again under King Hezekiah, who's a, the, 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 uh, the king of God's people. Assyria attacks again and there's no way that God's people are going to survive But Hezekiah the king cries out to God, and again, in human history, it says the hand of God intervened and Assyria was pushed back. And God was saying, no matter how big your problems may be, I can take care of them. That means that as we think about the situation in Ukraine right now, it means that God is able to handle those challenges and those issues and those problems. It means that your prayers for the people of Ukraine and for the church in Ukraine matter far more than you could ever dare to imagine. It's during this time that our prayers are probably more effective in times of need for the people of God than ever before. I've read multiple things that said from the people on the ground in Ukraine, they said, please, to the church in the world, to the people around the world, please don't think for a second that your prayers do not matter. That is their plea from our brothers and sisters in a war-ravaged area right now. Don't think for a second that before you go to bed, as you pray, my prayers aren't going to do anything. Maybe your prayer for five seconds, for 30 seconds, for a minute, is going to bring protection over one more person amongst the people of God in Ukraine. Don't think for a second that your prayers don't matter. No matter how big they are, God says, I'm going to fight for my people. Vengeance is mine. Wrath is mine because I stand for my people, whatever the problems may be in your life. God says it. No matter how big they are, I can take care of them. Can we commit to at least that this week? Every meal that we eat, every meal that we wish we could have, every time think about food, every time you go to bed, whenever, 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 that we would just pray for the people of Ukraine. Let's pray for the, for the mercy and the justice of God to be demonstrated in the situation. The God who's slow to anger would bring about His great purposes. But it also means that for your life and mine, whatever the situations are, however big they might be to you, that God says, listen, I'm able to handle those in your life. I don't know if you remember this, but a couple weeks ago, I was preaching on this idea that Hey, God's calling us. Maybe he puts a burden in our hearts to go pray for somebody. Hey, let's not put that off. Let's go and let's pray for them. What if we became a church? I, I, I questioned, I wondered, I said, what if we become a church that doesn't just say, oh, that's too bad, I will pray for you. But what if we said, oh, that's too bad, but let's pray right now. And what if we became a church like that where we just said, let's invoke God's power right now. Let's see God's power work right now. I don't want to just tell you to do it. I want to do this myself too. And so several times over the past few weeks, I, I, I've done that, said, hey, let's pray. A couple weeks ago, I, I asked our elders, hey, let's go pray for this, this person over here. The person said that they're in a lot of pain. They've had these issues in their, in their spine for a great long time. They said the doctors are trying, but, but it feels stiff and all this stuff going on. So we just, let's, let's pray. Let's pray right now. Let's believe. Thank think God, you know, God's going to do something. There's a couple other, three other people in, in, in my life this week that I prayed for specifically, that not just me, Olivia, a couple other people in, in our house church and in, in different contexts, we prayed for people. They had issues that were ongoing for a long time, some with their eyes, some with their, uh, with their hands and with their nerves, some with uh, internal organs, hadn't been able to sleep for, for, for a great long time. Said, Let, let's pray right now. Okay, God is able to handle your issues, your problems, no matter how big you think they are. And sometimes when you don't think you can pray, having other people come and pray for you is going to be the key that unlocks all that God wants to do. And out of you know, several situations, but there were three specifically, sometimes God answers instantaneously, sometimes God answers progressively, but three of these four people came back and they said, you know what, um, one guy said, I, I, I couldn't hold my cup, I couldn't hold, uh, I couldn't hold things, I couldn't hold a, a, a panhandle. And and they said, after uh, we prayed together, they're able to hold things. In one hand, it's it's, uh, strength has recovered. The other one, it's getting better. It's improving. Another person said, for 13 nights in a row, I, I couldn't sleep. Woken up every hour, every two hours, I couldn't sleep. After we prayed together, they said, for the first night, in 13 nights, I slept through the night and have no other symptoms in my life. I don't want to go into great detail because, again, these are testimonies that these people can share. These are their stories. But I want to say, in their minds, they thought these problems were too big for them. Person that our elders and I prayed for over there said, hey, came back and sent the message. Praise God. Praise God. I've got range of motion. I've got feeling things I never felt before and things that I felt before I don't feel anymore. All of these things to say that there are problems in our lives. All of us have problems in our lives that we think are so big that sometimes we may have given up even, even trusting God for. But God reminds us today, okay, God reminds us today that whatever your problems are, that he wants to handle them and they're not too big for him no matter how big they may be for you. So I want to invite you to come to Praise and Prayer Night this Friday, and let's pray. You pray for things that you've given up praying for. Ask people to pray for you. Come to morning prayer on Saturday morning in that space and and pray. Pray for things that you've given up praying for. Today, find someone. Find us. If you're sick with something, you've got an ailment, come and pray. The Bible says in the book of James, come, confess your sins, come to the elders, ask them to pray. So let's pray. Let's take God at His word because He can handle your problems no matter how big they are. It's the first thing that we see. Second thing that we see from the book of Nahum to us, to them, is get on God's side now because God always wins. If you're not on God's side right now, I want to tell you something. We know the end of the story, God is going to win with or without us. So the book of Nahum and the book of 66 books of scriptures is let's get on God's side now because we don't know when our time is going to be called. If you're not yet on God's side, this is a time. You know, a basketball player named Kevin Durant, one of the world's best players, one of the greatest players to probably ever played was drafted by a team called the Oklahoma City Thunder. And he played with them for a great long time and did, did amazing things with them. I think that someone can fact check this later, but in the year 2014, I think he was voted the most valuable player of the National Basketball Association. And then in 2015, I think he led his team to the conference finals, okay, where they're playing the Golden State Warriors. That means that if they win, the first team amongst these two to win four games against each other is going to advance to the championship where Elijah's team made it, okay, championship. <laughs> First team to win four games, here we go, they start playing, they start playing, they start playing, and Kevin Durant's team goes up three games, they win three games, Golden State's only won one, okay, Stephen Curry and the Golden State Warriors, it's three games, to win. they just need one more game to win, okay, just one more. The next three games, the Golden State Warriors win, they advance to the championships where they lose against LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. But that's another story. The main point is this. Here's Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, he, he, he leads his team to the one game away, one win away from the championship and they lose. And at the end of that season, he says, you know what? I'm gonna leave my team and I'm gonna go to the team that beat us, the Golden State Warriors. Because he said, if I can't beat them, then I will join them. And sure enough, the next two years, they went on to win the NBA championship. <laughs> wow. Kevin Durant teaches us a very important lesson. If you can't beat the team that's going to win, then you better get on that team. As who talked about a spoiler alert, let me give you a spoiler alert. God's going to win. The question is, are you going to win with him? God's going to win. The question is not, God, are you on my side? No, the question is, are you on God's side? Okay, this great cosmic life and war and everything that's going on the universe doesn't exist simply for, God, are you on my team? No, it's not about that. God is the sovereign I am, the ruler of all, the king of the world, the master of the universe. The question is, are you on His side? Because He's going to win. Look at what it says in verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. Have you found refuge in him? He cares for those who trust in him. Do you trust him? Because here's the other side. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. So verse, chapter 1 is all about Nahum saying, hey, Nineveh, you've got to wake up because the wrath of God is coming to you. Chapter 2 then says, okay, this is what it's going to look like. This is exactly how it's going to happen. And he tells him. and if you read this, it spells it out, clearly how all these things are going to happen. And then in chapter 3, it says why these things are going to happen. Because y'all are evil, wicked nation who's threatening the people of God and all that God stands for. But look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 6. Let's just, let's just pull out this snippet. Here is Nahum saying how Nineveh is going to fall. He says in, in, in verse 6, The river gates, okay, the river gates of Nineveh are thrown open and the palace in the center where the king of Assyria lives collapses, okay? The river gates are thrown open, the palace collapses. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Here he says, are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Okay, so what is he saying here? Thebes was a city in Egypt, okay, situated on the Nile. All around it was surrounded by water. Okay, water was supposed to make this a fortress that was completely impregnable. It could not be invaded. And because they were on the water, and they had walls around the city. It says, "Okay, with water around her, the river was her defense. The water's her wall." Because they had all this around them, they said, "You know what? We're not going to be defeated." The next verse it says, "Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies." Not only did they have this great location, but they had allies. There was no way that anyone could take down Thebes. But in the year 663 BC, the Assyrians to whom Nahum is, is speaking came, invaded Thebes. Took the city down, took the people, the inhabitants into exile. And what Nahum is saying is, listen: if you thought Thebes was it was uh, was completely uh, impenetrable, then think again. Because Nineveh is the exact same way, also situated in the midst, surrounded by water. They also had walls around. They had walls around it to protect it. Nineveh was supposed to be a city that could not be overtaken. And what Nahum is saying is, listen: if y'all thought. If you thought Thebes was untakeable, then think again, because the same thing is happening to you. And so there's a Greek historian. Oh, my goodness, I forget his name right now. I forget his name, but there's a Greek historian. I could tell you later, but here's what he said. In the year 612 B.C., six fourteen to 612 B.C., uh, uh, an empire, a a group of, of people called the Medes came, and they attacked Nineveh They could not overcome it, and so they joined forces with a group called the Babylonians, and the Medes and the Babylonians joined together, and together they laid siege in the year 612 B.C. to Nineveh, and the city of Nineveh fell. And the way it happened, according to this Greek historian, is that in 612 B.C., for a great period of time, rains came down unlike anything that Nineveh had seen before, and because the rains came down so much, the riverbanks flooded The rivers overflowed, much like what happened with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. The levees broke in New Orleans, but the walls were overtaken. Uh, the, the, The force of the water was so strong that it broke down the walls. And through that breach in the walls of Nineveh, the Babylonians came and they attacked the city. And because the king of Assyria knew the prophecy of Nahum, it said he took everyone and everything that he loved and cherished into the palace, and he burned it down to the ground. Nahum 2.6 says, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. Because God knows and God will always win. Chapter 2, verse 13 is one of the most chilling verses in all of Scripture. It says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. That's the statement of God to every human being who's ever born that I am against you because of your sin unless you find refuge in me. Brothers and sisters, we need to get on God's side now because He's going to win. We hear this verse all the time. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Absolutely. But flip it on its head. If God is against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. It doesn't matter how many friends you have, how much money you have. It doesn't matter what allies you have around you. It doesn't matter if China, Iran, Iraq are going to give you all this fuel. If God is against you, then who is for you does not matter. And so when the people of God hear that Nineveh, their fearful enemies, are going to fall. This is what they say in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, look, they're on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They'll be completely destroyed. The book of Nahum, Nahum means comfort, because he's saying the destruction of the evil empire means comfort us. And so the people of God are giving each other high fives. Yes, God is going to do it. He's going to do it for us. And as they're giving each other high fives, they're like, God, you did it. You did it. God, you're awesome. Let's go and live our happy life now. But God says, not so fast. Because you see, the people of God still have a reckoning with God as well. Thing. Just because you bear the name of God doesn't mean that you're not standing under my judgment. Just because you do the things that a religious person does doesn't mean you're walking in the favor of God. Just because you're doing a Daniel fast doesn't mean you're and he says there's still a reckoning that needs to be done. Just because you are my people doesn't mean that the judgment and discipline of God is not coming to you. God says, you and I, we've got work to do also. It's the people of God. Let Assyria and what happened to them be a warning to you. Let what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel be a warning to you. I'm calling you to come back to me. Where's your heart today, people of God? can be so fixated sometimes on the wickedness and the evil out there that we overlook the wickedness and the evil in here, and God says judgment begins with the house of God. One of my favorite shows, TV shows growing up, was a show called Different Strokes. It was a really fun show. And thinking about it now, man, they hit on some really hard-hitting issues. But it's a story of these two little, uh, two, two young children, African-American children, who are adopted by a wealthy Caucasian family in New York City. And so they get adopted into this family. And so it's, it's kind of trying to learn the, the, the different cues of ethnic groups and the socioeconomic Statuses which were different and trying to live out that kind of, a, of an ethic. And at one point in, in the show, the young son Arnold has gotten in trouble with his dad, Mr. Drummond. And so his dad says, Arnold, you need to be disciplined. I need to spank you. And so the older brother Willis chimes in. He says, Mr. D, for all of Arnold's life, he's never been spanked by anybody but me and, 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 and his parents. So do you think that I could be the one doing the spanking of of Arnold? And Mr. D says, okay, that that makes sense. That makes sense. And and he walks out of the room. And Arnold's like, thank you, Willis. Thanks for doing that for me. Thanks for covering for me. Mr. D's gone now. And so he thinks that because the oppressor is gone and out of the way, that everything is right. And so Willis says, all right, Arnold, come over here and, 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 and lay down on my lap. And so Arnold Lays down on his lap with his stomach on his lap and his butt sticking up. And so Willis gets the stick or whatever it is to spank Arnold. And Arnold is thinking, I've gotten away. I've gotten away from the punishment. And then as Willis is about to spank Arnold, Arnold looks up and he's like, hold up, Willis. Hold on a second. What are you going to hit to make it sound like my butt? And Willis says, your butt. Your butt. And Arnold, like Arnold is prone to say, says, What you talking about, Willis? What you talking about, Willis? Arnold thought that just because that's out of the way, that I don't have to deal with the consequences of my own actions. But Willis is saying to Arnold what God is saying to his people saying, My judgment against one doesn't mean that there is no more discipline left for another. Where are you today? Are you standing in a place where you're feeling the judgment of God? If you are, then God's saying, let's come back and let's repent. Because, you know, judgment does come to the people of God as well. Discipline does come to the people of God as well. Are you wandering from God? Is your heart far from the Lord? Where are you in your relationship with God today? Because as God brings judgment to the people of Nineveh, in exactly the way that he said he would. The message of Nahum is, God's always going to win. He's always going to win. Are you fighting against God? Are you in rebellion against God? Because can I tell you something? Look at, think about this. Throughout the history of this little group of people called the Jews, this little group of people, the people of God, there have been countless attempts throughout history to exterminate the people of God from existence from the mighty Egyptian empire during the days of Pharaoh when he enslaved Israel. It wasn't Israel's strength and might that led them free. It was through an mighty hand and an outstretched arm of God that they were able to be delivered. Where is the Egyptian empire now? They've fallen. Nowhere to be found. After that, it was the Philistines, the worst enemies of the people of God, the giant Goliath and constantly a thorn in the side of the people of God against this tiny nation, the mighty Philistines. Yet, where are the Philistines now, and where are the people of God now? The Philistines, nowhere to be seen. Then it was the Assyrian Empire. Remember, this mighty, evil, wicked people, the Ninevites of the Assyrian Empire, who tried to threaten and and did do away with Israel as a northern kingdom. But there was a remnant of people that still believed and still held true to the true and living God. Where are they now? They continue to proliferate the earth, people like you and me. Where is the Assyrian Empire? Gone forever. After this, it was the Babylonian Empire. 586 B.C., they take the remaining two tribes of Judah and took them into exile. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the mighty Babylonian Empire. Where are they now? They're nowhere to be found. Where are the people of God continuing to thrive in the land? After that, it was the Persian Empire, gone, eradicated, done away with the Medes. Where else? It's the Greeks, it's the Romans, all of these empires that tried to do away with them. Where are these ancient civilizations their name is nowhere to be found except in the books of history because God always wins. There's also a sense in this that happens in the modern day too. The former Soviet Union tried to exterminate the Jews. Nazi Germany tried to exterminate the Jews. Where are they now? Where are they? Somewhere in the plan and the purpose of God, there is a remnant of people that God says they will be a light and they will be a witness and they will continue to shine until, I, until Jesus comes back and makes all things right. God always wins. You see that throughout history and you will see that in your life. God always wins, so you've got to get on his side because you don't know how much of life is guaranteed. All of us come with an end date that has been set in our lives and we don't know when that's going to be. See, the book of Nahum means comfort, and part of the reason why God continued to preserve a remnant from the tribe of Judah is that 700 years after the fall of Nineveh, there would come another prophet who would rise up, who would not only his name would mean comfort, but would be the embodiment of it. God would send His Son as the final prophet into the world to live and to breathe the message of the prophets to incarnate justice and mercy uh, and love in the way that we talked about and heard from Micah, to be the one who brings ultimate comfort to the people of God who turn and put their trust in Him. Jesus would be the comfort He would be and He is the refuge for our lives as long as we understand that He lived for us and He died for us. Because through His life, He was discomforted and through His life, He was distressed and throughout His life, At the end of it, he was disrobed until finally he hung naked on a cross. And in the one moment where he needed comfort the most, he was abandoned in order that he might become a refuge so that all who come in might find comfort. God says, I will take care of the biggest challenges and the worst enemies and the biggest problems of your life. Death is and sin and guilt and the wrath of God, it will be satisfied at the cross so that you might be comforted. If God did not spare His only Son but gave Him up for us all, is there anything that He would not do in order that He might help you in the midst of your challenges and problems of life? God wants to handle your problems if you would come to Him and you'd get on His side because at the end of the story, we know how it ends. God's going to win. He's going to win. He always does. And if he seems slow in keeping his promise, it's not because he doesn't see or doesn't know. If it seems like he's slow in keeping his promise. It's because he's patient with us that his kindness would lead us to repentance. Let's hear the warning of Nahum. Let's hear his message. and Let's come back to him again today. Let's pray together. As we respond to the word of God in prayer, maybe three things that we can think about as we pray. Number one, you might be celebrating the downfall of somebody else, but is there some reckoning that you need to do in your heart with God? Does God say, hold up, hold up, wait a second, we're not done here yet. You might have been serving me faithfully. You might have just experienced the mountaintop experience. But there's still this issue of your sin and your disobedience. What areas of your life do you need to repent before the Lord? Maybe your hatred towards another person. Maybe it's your half-hearted devotion to the Lord. Maybe it's a hypocrisy that looks good in front of others. But apart from the watching eye of other people, there's not much difference in how you seek to live. Let's come back to the heart of God as we repent for our sins and ask the Lord that He would have mercy on us. Second, let's pray for any problems that we have in our lives. If you think they're too big, let's come back to God. Let's bring it to God. And then third, let's pray for the people of Ukraine, especially the church in Ukraine. Lord would have mercy and He'd be near to them during this time. Let's pray for a few moments like this. Lord, the Ninevehs of the world will fall. The wicked nations and schemes and regimes of this world are going to fall. Lord, we. Father in heaven, we confess that there are a lot of things in our lives that probably we're giving you, things that other people would praise, but when you look at it, it feels like it's, it's an offering that doesn't come from the heart. And in your deep love for us, there's anger towards sin. There's an anger that you are slow to release because you love us so much. but well, Lord, may we know, looking at the cross, how angry sin makes you, that you would give your son in order that sin's punishment could be paid, taken by another so that we could find freedom. So, Lord, help us to come back to your heart for our hidden sins, our secret sins, our lying, our gossip, our anger, our hatred our bitterness, our laziness, our lust, our greed, our our pride, whatever it is that we have in us. Lord, we lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Pray that you would cleanse and wash us. And Lord, we bring to you our challenges, our problems, things that seem too big. We bring to you our health issues. We bring to you our emotional issues. We bring to you the things that seem like Assyria, seem like Russia to us. There's no way I can overcome it. But we bring it to you because we know it's not too big for you. We do pray for Ukraine whose issues are massive right now, who may feel like the ancient people of God during the time of the Assyrian Empire. Lord, we ask that you would be near to the church and to the people of Ukraine, that you would have mercy, that you would stop this war with peace, that you would thwart the advance of the oppressors, and that you would bring your justice in your love, and in your kindness, and in your patience, that you would do this for your glory. May the church around the world arise to pray, and to believe, and to know that every prayer helps, and every prayer is heard by God of infinite love. We thank you so much. We love you, because you've loved us first. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we um, As we stand, we're going to sing. Let's stand together. We're going to sing one last song, and I want us to sing this song as our confession and our devotion to the Lord God, but maybe if in your heart there, there feels a desire to intercede for the people of Ukraine, I want you to uh, put this song um, on the lips of the church in Ukraine and this war-ravaged nation and to think of what it means to sing this song in order that we might believe it with a deeper conviction. Yeah, so let's worship together.